What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? What's stopping you? I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. What's stopping you? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith, we would love to tackle that question for you, and you can move on with your life. Wouldn't that be a great thing? Now, we're not not going to take any uh, live calls today, uh, but we are going to do a special mailbag edition of our program. And the mailbag is actually rather full, so uh, we should have a lot of great questions on today's program uh, that Charles, our producer, has uh, put together for us. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, good to see you today. Good to see you, sir. All good for you? Pretty good, pretty good. You are traveling this weekend, is that right? Um, I am traveling. I am going to be with Red Sea Catholic Radio in two different towns in Texas, and looking forward to it. Fantastic. We're going to lead off with this question from Al, who says, Dear Dr. Anders, recently you answered a caller's question by referring to God as pure spirit and stated God could not have, quote, walked in the Garden of Eden because God does not have feet. You used as your reference Origen, who was neither a church father nor a saint of the Catholic Church. In Catholic charity, Dr. Anders, I hope you will reconsider that response and come to a Catholic conclusion. I offer the following evidence. Revelation 4, verses 2 through 3. Revelation 4, uh, verse 10. Revelation 5, verse 1 and Revelation 5, verse 2. So, I ask, is not an angel also a pure spirit? John saw the angel. Why would the elders worship someone on the throne they could not see? Mary has appeared to many and is also a pure spirit, but those humans could see her. We have her image on the tilma of Guadalupe, do we not? Thanks, Al. Yeah, thanks. So, Obviously, the, the, the line about God having not feet is a little bit tongue-in-cheek. I mean, clearly he doesn't have feet, you're right, but, uh, but, uh, but there's a bit of humor intended there when I make that response. Okay. Although I did get it from Origen. And there is, of course, in Scripture something that the Church Fathers and theologians recognize as a theophany, when God allows himself to be perceived um, through a material medium or a vision or something that's not God, but it's a kind of stand-in for God, mm. if you will. Okay. Um, probably one of the most interesting examples would be the smoking fire pot that passes through the pieces of slaughtered animal in Genesis when Abraham makes that offering. And here he has this vision of a smoking fire pot passing between pieces of mm. an animal, and God makes his declaration you know, that he's the Lord and, and Abraham's God. Well, clearly God is not a smoking fire pot any more than God is God's feet, and yet yeah. Abraham had some kind of experience, a visionary experience that he associated with uh, the being and presence of God. And the same thing would hold for angels. Angels are pure spirits, but they can, um, we wouldn't call them theophanies, we'd call them angelophanies. Um, uh, but, the, but the point still remains that in Catholic dogma, uh, God, first of all, is a pure spirit, uh, is, is immaterial, and, and that it is not necessary to take the descriptions of Genesis 1 to 3 as a literal account of an historical event. Okay. Right? That, that, that's the underlying uh, conclusion that I wanted to draw, uh, and it's sustained by, by more than just uh, comments about whether or not God is a pedestrian. <laughs> okay. Very good. Al, thanks so much uh, for your very thoughtful letter. Appreciate that. 
Here's one now from Kathy who says, I have a daughter-in-law who is from Brazil. She is very much a Catholic, but while talking, I mentioned the sacraments. She did not know what I was talking about. Is First Communion, Reconciliation, and Confirmation a U.S. thing? Do they possibly call them something different than we do in uh, Brazil? I tried to explain them to her, but it didn't help. Thank you, Kathy. Um, yeah, thanks. So I don't speak um, I don't speak Portuguese, but I believe that the word for sacrament in Portuguese is uh, sacramento. At least that, according to Google Translate, pretty right, close. Fly, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I, uh, they they clearly do have the sacraments in in Catholic Brazil. There's no doubt about that. Um, why you had a failure co- to communicate with your daughter-in-law, I have no idea. Uh, and, but um, uh, but no, First Communion and Confirmation are not uniquely American uh, practices. This is universal in, in the Catholic Church. So I don't know what the confusion is, um, if it's a felt of language or something else, or her catechesis, but um, clearly they have the sacraments in Brazil. Very good. Thank you so much. And uh, Kathy, thank you for your email. It's a special mailbag edition on this Friday afternoon of Call to Communion here on EWTN. Here's one now from Kevin. Dr. Anders, when I'm praying the daily rosary, if I'm meditating on that mystery and saying the Hail Marys, I don't feel like I'm paying attention to Mary because I'm not thinking of the words of the prayer. Conversely, if I concentrate on the Hail Mary, well, then I'm not focusing on the mystery. So how would we most effectively pray our rosary? Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, the most effective way to pray your rosary is whatever way generates within you the deepest effective response to the Blessed Virgin. Mm. So if, if verbally articulating the prayers uh, is more effective for you, then that's where you put your energy. If, if, uh, if the use of your imagination... Uh, in picturing the mysteries is more effective, then that's where you place your your emphasis. The important thing is, whatever our prayer is, that it should bring our will into alignment with the will of God. And because temperaments and personalities differ, um, different styles of prayer are more effective for one person than another, but, the, the, but their efficacy is measured, again, by our conformity to God's will. That's, that is the, that's the standard. That's the measure. Very good. And uh, this one from Wendy, and you're probably going to get some enemies out of this one, David. And Wendy says, do dogs have souls? Do dogs go to heaven? Will dogs be in heaven? And will animals be in heaven? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So the Catholic position is that dogs and all animals, and for that matter, anything that's alive, including your houseplant, has a soul. Um, But only humans have immaterial souls. Only humans have immortal souls. So the animal soul, the dog soul, is a material soul, and it perishes with the dog. So there is no promise of redemption or life eternal for, for Fido. Um, as to whether or not animals will be in heaven, uh, well, there's no beatific vision for dogs. And so because there's no immaterial soul, there's no, uh, there's no existence for the separated soul as there is for the human. If you, if you die in the state of grace and perfect charity, you can go straight away to the beatific vision. Uh, Fido can't. Um, that's not to say that in the renewal of all things, when God creates a new heavens and a new earth, that there won't be animals. That That's more than we know. Maybe there will be animals in the new heavens and the new earth, and maybe you'll have a perfect carbon copy of Fido, for all I know. Wouldn't that be something? Wendy, thanks so much uh, for your email. We're going to get to lots more of these on this special mailbag edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. Do stay with us.
Very glad you're with us on this Friday edition of EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. David is on the road as we speak, so uh, we've got a special mailbag program cooked up for you today. This one is from Kevin in Mendota Heights, Minnesota. Hello, Dr. Anders. My wife is an unbaptized believer who desires to get baptized soon in her evangelical church. We were asked to be godparents to our nephew, who was baptized in a Lutheran church five years ago. I am Catholic. I didn't realize I should have backed out of being a godparent at that time. My nephew's parents have since then come back into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the nephew's parents. So are either my unbaptized wife or myself canonically considered godparents? Would my wife be elevated to godparent after her Protestant baptism? My wife is bothered by all this as she heard our nephew not acknowledge her as his godmother over the weekend. Best regards, Kevin. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, um, look, the most important thing—the act of being a godparent is not in itself a sacrament of the church, right? Okay. Um, The tradition of godparents allows for you to establish a kind of affinity with with. Uh, a young person to mm-hmm. be a moral influence in their life, um, and while the church does have rules about designating somebody as a godparent for purposes of Catholic baptism, uh, the relationship that you have established with this child seems to me to be a good one, and and your intent is good. And I don't know what your canonical status is within the Catholic Church regarding this kid, but you've got a history together and clearly a desire to be a positive influence in this child's life, and I, go with that. I mean, that's yeah. what we call charity. Sure. And the, the the legal niceties of the thing strike me as far less important than the goodwill and relationship that you've already built. Kevin, thanks so much for your email. And for this one from Melanie, we're going to go back, oh, about a thousand years or so. Hello, Dr. Anders. Can you please explain the filioque controversy? Why did the Orthodox reject filioque? And why did the Catholic Church add it? Why why is the filioque clause important? And can you provide any evidence from Scripture or from writings of the saints to defend the filioque? Have there been any modern developments between the Orthodox and the Catholics on this subject? Thanks and sincerely, Melanie. What are we even talking about here? Yeah, so uh, thank you. I appreciate the question. Uh, in Latin, the phrase filioque means and the son, and the son. Okay. And it refers to the line in the creed when we state that we believe in the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son, or he proceeds uh. from the Father filioque. And uh, the controversy is because in the original Nicano-Constantinopolitan creed, you don't find the phrase, and the Son, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Uh, there was a Christological movement that arose in Spain in late antiquity called adoptionism that had a lower view of Jesus, not fully divine, and to counter adoptionism in Spain, some of the bishops began to insist on the procession of the Spirit from both the Son and the Father to underscore the divinity of Jesus. Um, you can find many references in the Church Fathers uh, to the Spirit either proceeding from Christ or coming from Christ or being the Spirit of Christ or mm-hmm. Jesus sending the Spirit. That kind of language occurs, especially in the Gospel of John, but also in the Church Fathers. So it's not a it's not an innovation in Church history, uh, but it was employed polemically in this one context. And in that context, the Bishop of Rome approved it. Interestingly, when the filioque first began floating, 
around in the Latin West. Uh, the Pope approved it, but he didn't insist on it, and he himself didn't employ it in his own recitation of the creed. And there's, there's a, the Pope at the time um, actually had the creed uh, put up at St. Peter's in Latin and Greek, and the Latin version had the filioque, and the Greek didn't, as so much as to say, "Look, we're all Catholics. You know, this is you know, this. We don't have to make this a fighting issue." Yeah. And uh, and and it was actually Charlemagne, the Roman Emperor Charlemagne, who put a lot of pressure on the fo- on the Pope to make it uh, the exclusive um, account of the of the Christian creed. So there was a political motive there on the part oh, of, okay. of the Holy Roman Emperor. And you know, the East took offense for a couple of reasons, primarily. It was the uh, the idea that the Pope would do this unilaterally apart from the will of an ecumenical council because they had received the creed from Nicaea and Constantinople in that one form, and here comes the Pope seemingly all by himself uh, imposing a new version on the entire Christian world without, without consultation. And uh, it's more nuanced than that, but that was the basic complaint. And that remains a big point of controversy that does the Pope, should the Pope act uh, unilaterally in that way? Um, St. Thomas Aquinas, of course, a few centuries later, in the 13th century, writes into the Summa Theologica a whole article about the fact that the Pope has the authority to do this because he's the vicar of Christ and has the keys of the kingdom, etc. Um, but that's, you know, it remains an ecumenical sticking point to this day by Eastern bishops that that are understandably um, protective of their of their rights and dignities as bishops of their diocese, and they don't love the idea of the universal jurisdiction of the Pope. And they like to like the idea of a more consultative uh, model of the papacy mm. in the See of Peter. Um, there are those who will actually argue that the thesis is theologically incorrect, make the claim that the Spirit does not, in fact, proceed from the Son. Uh, that is a that's less common, and I think the general position is that it's more about ecclesiology than it is about theology. Um, and uh, and ecumenical dialogues between East and West have, have pretty much, by and large settled that issue, that this isn't a doctrinal point that need divide East and West. It, it is more about the ecclesiology of who has the authority to define a creed. Melanie, thanks so much uh, for your email. We're doing a special mailbag edition of Call to Communion on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Here's one now from Brendan who says, Dr. Anders, I understand that the Eucharist is a sacrifice. I understand that the sacrifice of the Mass is an unbloodied sacrifice, unlike the cross. So we aren't re-crucifying Christ, but I am not sure what is meant by the term sacrifice here. How is it a sacrifice if there is no life being given up? I've been speaking with a Protestant who is pointing to that question, as well as trying to get clarity about what the Council of Trent meant when they said the Christ is immolated at consecration. And again, that's from Brendan. Yeah, thanks. So who says that a sacrifice has to include uh, the death of a victim. Who said that? Well, your Protestant friend said it. Who's he? Why should we listen to him? <laughs> like that, That's clearly not true in Scripture. There are plenty of sacrifices in Scripture that don't include the death of a victim. Uh, you know, there is a, there's a grain offering in the Old Testament. There are libations, the pouring out of wine on, upon the altar. Um, there is even something in the Old Testament called a wave offering, I love that one. You can yeah. wave things around, you know, in front of the front fun. of the altar. Yeah. Um, and of course, in the New Testament, Paul says that we can offer our bodies as living sacrifices. 
which may or may not involve the death of a victim, depending on what the context is, of course. So it's just not true that you have to have the death of a victim in order to have a sacrifice. Uh, as to what is being referred to when they talk about the immolation of Christ on the altar, uh, the, it's a symbolic immolation. The double consecration of the elements, the bread over here, wine over here, bread standing in for the body of Christ and becoming the body of Christ, wine over there becoming the blood of Christ, showing Jesus in a state of victimhood, displaying, as it were, the separation of his body from his blood, even though they're not actually separated, they're just represented as separated, is a symbolic representation of what took place on Calvary. And so the immolation is not the bloody death of a victim. It is, in fact, the display of Christ's victimhood under this symbolic form. And, and so the immolation is in the rite itself. It's the act of the consecration of the two elements that represents the victimhood of Jesus. And Brendan, thank you so much uh, for your email. It's called a communion, our uh, Friday edition of the Mailbag program today. If you would like to send us an email for a future show, here is the address, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Perla has this question, do Jews have a divine right to Israel, even if they broke their covenant with God by rejecting Jesus as the Messiah? Um, yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, the Catholic position is that the modern state of Israel is uh, is not the fulfillment of some Old Testament prophecy. And Old Testament prophecy is only relevant to the modern state of Israel insofar as the political players active in the world today may reference it. Mm. Right. So it's it's obviously a factor in people's psychology. Sure. Um, but uh, but we don't. The Catholic Church doesn't maintain that. I mean, it's conspicuous that the Catholic Church never went down there and colonized the Holy Land and settled Jews there. I mean, that was never the agenda. It's never been part of the Catholic understanding of Judaism or Christianity or geography. Um, so the Zionism, religious Zionism, is not a Catholic doctrine. Now there there may be there may be Catholic secular Zionists, right? You somebody may may ideologically think it's a good idea for Jews to have a homeland. I'm I'm not advocating that position. I'm not refuting it. I'm just articulating a possibility. Someone could, in theory, be a Catholic political Zionist, even as many early Jewish Zionists were actually atheists. There were some secular Jews that were advocates of Zionism because they thought we're getting beat up everywhere else in the world. We need some place where we won't get beat up. And that was the argument for Zionism. Okay. There's also a religious Zionism that says, you know, God has given this land to the descendants of Abraham ethnically. We're Jews. That's us. And so we, we own it. It's ours. Um, that's not the Catholic position. Uh, now, there was a second part of the question. I forgot what that was. I mean, oh, 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 in view of, have they lost it in view of their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah? Yes. Right. Yes. Um, so um, that's, uh, again, the Catholic Church and the New Testament does not regard the Jewish people as having been cut off definitively from God because of the rejection of Jesus. In fact, the book of Romans explicitly says the opposite, right? It says the opposite. And, uh, but St. Paul, when he writes Romans, doesn't really—the land doesn't figure into his discussion so much. It's really more their identity as uh, as the people of God. And, of course, St. Paul's writing at a time when you've already witnessed several centuries of Jewish diaspora. So his conception of, of, of Jewishness, of Judaism, 
and of covenant membership is not tied so specifically to the geography. Okay. And uh, Perla, what a beautiful name. Uh, Perla, thank you so much for your email. Call to communion here on EWTN. Uh, This from Emmanuel in Manitoba. Emmanuel says, we're somewhat newcomers here in Canada, and what I'm experiencing here during the Mass is that Canadians stand up during the communion up to the point that the last communicant is finished. Some still stand up until the remaining blessed hosts are stored inside the tabernacle. I am a Filipino immigrant. I'm accustomed to the Mass in the Philippines, which does not have this kind of practice during the Mass. What would be the proper way to do this? You 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 celebrate the Mass the way the local ordinary tells you to. I see. Well, celebrate's the wrong word. You participated Mass okay. the way the local ordinary tells you to. And my understanding is that the, the instructions for receiving Holy Communion in Canada are that it's standing. Okay. Well, then that's what we do. Uh, Emmanuel, uh, welcome to Canada. Thanks so much for your email. Here's an interesting one from Carol. Do morals determine your theology, or does theology determine your morals? I, I, depends on how you mean the question, mm. all right? Mm. Are you talking about empirically? Do, do people construct their theology in order to justify their moral position? Um, or do people arrive at a moral conviction based upon their theology? Uh, or, or is this a normative question? Should we determine our theology based on our morals or vice versa? So the yeah. empirical versus the normative. Um, I think it's undeniably true that some people decide what they want to do in the world and then go seeking for a theoretical justification. Mm. That's undeniably true. There's a great book on that topic by the, the NYU social psychologist Jonathan Haidt. His book, The Righteous Mind, about political and religious disagreement, argues that thesis persuasively, that most people will come to an ideological position after the fact once they've decided antecedently what it is they want to do, and they just go look for a justification. That, that seems to me fairly uncontroversial and true to my experience, you know, and, and you, you, can, you can sort of generally pick people's political ideology based on their demographics. You think? Well, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, you, you, that's what pollsters do. You know, that this this demographic group is going to vote, you know, 85% for this party. That demographic group uh. is going to vote for that party. And uh, and their their ideological talking points are going to follow the economic interest of their of their demography. That that's generally the case, okay. right? and that's true in religion as well. Should it be that way? Probably not, right? Probably not. We, it seems to me we should have a much more view from nowhere, dispassionate, cosmic, take in the whole, regard the common good theology, and then ought to genuinely be willing to moderate our behavior in the interests of our fellow person, even if it disadvantages us in the in the immediate. Uh, that's harder to do. Yeah. Um, but what, last point would be that um, if theology is conceived of as a like an extremely abstract activity of uh, you know deducing dogmatic propositions and working out a theoretical system, and then trying to impose that upon empirical reality, that also is fraught with difficulty. Because a person can fall in love with their theoretical construction mm. and then have their theses dashed in confrontation with reality. So, you know, um, the Catholic, you know in Catholic moral theology, uh, yes, we have our theoretical constructs based on Scripture and sacred tradition, but we also nod a great bit to human experience 
and and you know the way these things are lived out prudently in in life. A good example of that would be the way Catholic moral theology has shifted to accommodate better understanding of human psychology. Look at the way we look at marriage validity now vis-a-vis, say, psychological capacity to make long-term commitments. Oh, yeah, very good. And, uh, Carol, thanks so much for your very thoughtful email. In a moment, we're going to get an email here from Lydia. Here's one from Refugio. And we've got lots more on this special mailbag edition of Call to Communion on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN. Stay with us. Hey, thanks for joining us for Call to Communion on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Not taking your calls today, we're doing a special mailbag edition of our program, uh, answering a whole bunch of emails that have come in over the past few weeks. If you would like to send us an email for a future show, we'll add it to the mailbag and hopefully get it answered as soon as we can. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. Here's one now from Adam who says, Dr. Anders, could you please expound or comment on Baruch 2, verses 1 through 3? I'm trying to understand verse 3. Thanks, Adam. Wow, okay. I'm not quite ready for Baruch 2, 1 to 3, but I will pull it up, and we're going to give it a shot. boy. Okay, hang on. Uh, oh, heavens, heavens, heavens. I'll tell you what. Can we come back to Baruch 2, sure. 1 to 3? Thank let's, you. Let's do that. And uh, in the meantime, we'll talk with uh, Emily, who says, Dr. Anders, I was hoping you could help me better answer this question next time it's brought up. My brother-in-law is having their first child in January. We were discussing the topic of circumcision. My husband and I are Catholic. We did not circumcise our son. My brother-in-law, who's a Protestant, claims he is circumcising his son due to it being in the Bible and doesn't want to go against the Bible, making it a sin to not circumcise. He also quoted a passage from the Bible. I don't know I don't know how to respond to this. The only thing I could say is I know it is not a sin to not circumcise your child. What would your response be? Thank you so much, Emily. Yeah, so St. Paul wrote an entire epistle about this question. Yeah. The letter of Galatians. I recommend that you read it. Because in Galatians uh, what was going on was that there were some Gentile converts to the Christian faith who were not circumcised. And a party of Jewish Christians from Jerusalem had come by and said, hey, if you want to be a Christian, you have to circumcise yourself and follow the law of Moses. And Paul's language about that group was so vitriolic, it's amazing that it made it into sacred scripture at all. Really? Yes. He, he said that if you, if, you do the, if you allow this to be done to you, you will, you will be cut off from grace and have no part of Christ. That is, if you submit to circumcision— you, you radically misunderstand the nature of the gospel and, and totally contradict what it means to have faith in Jesus. Wow. Right? It's very strong language. And then he goes on to say that he wishes that the proponents of circumcision would go all the way and emasculate themselves. Gee. It's the dirtiest language in the Bible right now over this issue. Um, so it's, it is emphatically the case that Christians are not obligated to circumcise their children for religious motives, right? Now, if you're a Jewish person, totally different story. But for Gentile believers in Jesus, no obligation to circumcise. And the insistence upon circumcision as a religious duty, according to St. Paul, is a massive misunderstanding of the nature of the Christian faith. So, you know, outside of the United States, uh, most, most Catholics do not circumcise their, their male infants unless that's the cultural practice of their 
local country. Uh -huh. you know? In the United States, for reasons that I've somewhat obscure to me. It is it is often normal, although increasingly less so, mm -hmm. for people to circumcise their children. And I think, you know, maybe there are, there's, it's, my understanding is it's pretty darn safe not to, right? And there are some complications and difficulties with, with doing it. There are one or two diseases and medical problems that can be prevented through circumcision, but it can also cause others. So it's really a, up to the parent's discretion and it's a be an you know either an aesthetic or a or a hygienic consideration certainly not a religious one to make it a religious concern is to misunderstand fundamentally misunderstand the nature of the christian faith and its relationship to judaism all right emily thank you so much uh, for your email are you ready for baruch now uh let's see you, you want to do see. another let's one see here. i think i've got baruch okay baruch two one to three right that is correct so the lord confirmed his word which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged israel and against our kings, and against our princes, and against the men of Israel and Judah. Okay, so God is really railing against a number of the authorities. Under the whole heaven there has not been done the like of what has been done in Jerusalem, in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, that we should eat one of the flesh of his son and another of the flesh of his daughter. Okay, so, um, yeah, uh, the, the, uh, the context of of hardship and and difficulty in Jerusalem that would lead people to those kinds of acts. I mean, this is not the only occasion. We read of the the account uh, uh, Josephus's account of the fall of Jerusalem, for example. Uh huh. Um, in seventy A.D., um, people were driven to cannibalism as well. And and this is, I mean, this is it's unthinkable. It's it's horrifying to contemplate. But people that are put into desperate circumstances sometimes result to desperate measures. And uh, and that, you know, from the from the prophet's point of view is a really a, not a sign of divine favor if this has come upon you. Okay. Well, we appreciate that. I hope that uh, clarifies that for you. It's a little bit complex, I think, at a, at a first read, mm -hmm. isn't it? Okay. Very good. Call to communion here on EWTN. As you probably know, if you've been hearing our show for a while on the mailbag program, sometimes we can uh, read some longer emails that we just don't have time for on our regular live show. And this is one of them. This is from Henry in Nairobi, Kenya. Henry says, Dear Dr. Anders, what would you say to reassure someone who is struggling with the idea, commonly held by people of African origin, that Christianity is a psycho-spiritual and philosophical system that was wrongly promoted to replace the African one? Furthermore, there is a claim that the Western world uses Christianity to oppress and dominate the African people by obliterating over time their true identity in forcefully indoctrinating them into the Western culture, education, and religion. These are disturbing notions that reduce Catholicism and the Christian religion to a big hoax. We have an emerging trend here in Kenya whereby Christians are more increasingly seeking the services of traditionalists who are completely opposed to Christianity and are teaching that as Africans, we need to go back to our traditional beliefs about God and worship practices. I'm not able to articulate it better or further than this, but please try to speak to these issues and possibly suggest sources that would uh, shed more light on these claims. And again, that's from Henry in Nairobi. Um, yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So I, I, I wish I had an example from Kenya. I don't, but I have one from the other side of the continent. Okay. 
Um, I was blessed one time to spend an, a delightful afternoon with with Bishop uh, John Obena, who was an archbishop of um, a diocese in Nigeria. He came to Birmingham, Alabama for a conference that my own bishop, Robert Baker, had put on. It was a conference about racism and the state of race relations in the United States. And um, and uh, and Bishop Obena uh, gave an amazing lecture where he talked about the problem of racism in Nigeria, and it wasn't white on black or black on white. It was tribe on tribe, and uh, of course, which is a pervasive problem throughout through a lot of the African continent. And his own task, his he saw his his mission as a Catholic bishop, was to try to help disparate different groups of, of tribes that had traditionally been at each other's throats to recognize their commonality both as children of God and as Christians and to overcome those those kind of caste-based and race-based differences that had led to so much violence. Um, but uh, in the afternoon that I spent with him, he told me a little bit about his own life. And, and if, I, uh, if I remember correctly, he had been brought up a Catholic, but his, uh, you know, he, his family hadn't been Catholic that long. Um, and uh, when he came to the West, interestingly, studied at a prominent Catholic institution in North America that I won't mention. Okay. Uh, he got into social sciences, and and he lost his faith, or at least was very challenged because mm-hmm. of the you know the kind of you know comparative religious study and and the materialism of that discipline really cost him his Catholic faith, and so he was kind of drifting for a while, and he went back to Nigeria and he began to study indigenous African, West African religions. And and what he found was a doctrine of the one God. And of course, there is a, there is a strong tradition in West African religion of, a, it's not monotheism, but it's a kind of, you know, a kind of top God who is the head of the pantheon, as okay. it were, who is typically viewed as remote and ineffable and one doesn't have direct contact with, but underwrites uh, the natural order and essentially a natural law view of the ethical life, right? That there, that there was one God, that there was a pattern of human living that would tend to flourishing, that was characterized by moral behavior and moral maxims like the um, uh, like uh, the golden rule and not doing to others what you wouldn't have them do unto you and so forth. And And interestingly, that study of indigenous African, West African religion made belief in God and the spiritual world and the ethical life credible to him again. And he came back into his Catholic faith as a result of his engagement with indigenous African religions. But clearly, from the point of view of his Catholic faith, Mm -hmm. he also had something to offer by way of criticism and critique of of his indigenous religious traditions, namely the pervasive presence of tribalism and racism that were also characteristic. And so... There was value there mm-hmm. in the indigenous religion that actually reawakened his Catholic faith, but it wasn't perfection. And there was also something that Catholicism had to offer, which was a stronger insensus on the on the equal dignity of every man and woman, potentially as a child of God. Right. So there was a there was a healthy a healthy symbiosis there between the the traditional and and the Christian. Um, so I don't doesn't have to be construed as one of just uh, ex- exclusive antagonism. Right now, um, you know, I I suppose my ancestry is Scotch Irish, and and so Christianity, while very old in the West, is not the religion of my ancestors going back thousands of years. 
I really personally have no desire to go back to offering human sacrifices uh, by slashing people's throats and throwing them in peat bogs. I'm glad to hear that. Right, which, of course, was characteristic of Celtic religion and, you know, uh, 1,800 years ago, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and one of the things that Christianity has always stood for is opposition to superstition of various kinds, whether that, oppos- whether that superstition emerged from a Christian context or from a pagan context, that there are practices that are intrinsically irrational, that are harmful. Um, they may be customary, uh, but as Tertullian pointed out, Jesus Christ said, I am the truth, not I am the custom, right? And that whether those customs are Christians or pagan, they ought to be brought under the scrutiny, uh, both of reason and, and the hu- genuine human good, and the Christian doctrine of the dignity of persons and the, and the authority of God, right? And so Christianity um, has had a humanizing and elevating effect wherever it has gone, whether that's West Africa or Ireland or the British Isles or Western Europe, and, and things like human rights, um, uh, respect for indigenous peoples, uh, uh, respect for indigenous cultures, um, s- reasonable standards of evidence in criminal courts, uh, institutions of benevolence like hospitals and public education. These things are uh, the eventual outgrowth, the outworking, and the fruit of Christian doctrines like the dignity of the human person and God's universal will to save, right? So they're real concrete benefits to Christianity. Um, that That is not to say that Christians in civilization have not committed atrocities. Of course, they have, especially in Africa. And so Christianity has often been used as, a, as an excuse for colonization and enslavement and every manner of indignity. But from where we're standing today, why are we able to see that that is wrong? Wrong against what standard? I mean, can you imagine having a conversation with Genghis Khan and saying, well, you know, you can't go out raping and pillaging and conquering because, well, you know, the dignity of the human person. And Genghis Khan would, you know, laugh as he took two steps towards you with his scimitar. Yeah, you know? I mean, yeah. like, m- most cultures in history have been engaged in gross atrocities against their fellow man, but felt perfectly justified in doing so. Mm-hmm. Uh, tribalism, right? I mean, the whole impetus behind tribalism, and this is an intense loyalty and often a great deal of benevolence towards people that are in my group, but people that are outside my group are viewed as a threat and something to be conquered and defeated, Right. And the reason that we now regard that as problematic ultimately is because of the Christian doctrine of the dignity of the human person and, uh, and the emphasis that we should regard the welfare of our neighbor even if he is a foreigner to us. Henry, I'm delighted that we had enough time to uh, get to your question and I uh, hope that is helpful for you. Thank you so much, my friend. I'm glad that you're listening there in Nairobi. It's called a communion here on EWTN. We're big believers around here in the Holy Rosary. That's why we broadcast it every day on EWTN radio and television. Here on the radio side, you can hear it at 5.30 a.m. Eastern with Mother Angelica and again at 9.30 p.m. Eastern with Father Benedict Groeschel. Do check out the rosary. Join us uh, each and every day if you would. Here's a question now from Mel, who says, Hi, Dr. Anderson, Tom. The revised edition of the Catechism of the Catholic Church is more expensive, and I'm not sure the editions would justify the price. Also, I'm not sure if the additional material is more modern, trendy than necessary. What are the new revelations or changes in the updated version that one did not know before? I thought Revelation ended with St. John. (laughs) 
can I stick with the regular second edition? Thanks for being av- available to explain. It's highly valuable. That's from Mel. Yeah, thanks, Mel. Really appreciate the question. So, so maybe some misunderstanding here about precisely what the catechism is, mm-hmm. what it purports to be, what its utility is. The, the catechism is not meant to be the final word in divine revelation. Right? That is not the purpose of the catechism. Um, the catechism as such is not divine revelation, right? It is a product of human <laughs> industry uh, and the magisterium of the church. What is its function? What is its purpose? The, 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 the catechism is meant to be a helpful guide to people who have catechetical ministry, pr- principally bishops and priests, but also lay people, um, so that they can present the Catholic faith to catechumens with integrity. Okay. All right. And and thus, decisions about what to put in the catechism are not delivered from on high as if by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They're prudential choices about how to frame catechetical instruction in a way that would be most useful for the contemporary experience. Um, and so let me give you an example of, like, there are deliberate omissions that strike me as very sensible um, you could conceivably write a catechism of the Catholic Church in which you spent a hundred pages delineating all of the theories about divine predestination and providence and the relationship of, of grace to human freedom. You could do that. Okay. That wouldn't be very useful. Like, all that's part of the Catholic tradition. That's all in there. It's, there's theological writing on those issues, but, um, but, but, but maybe not very helpful like to people that, for whom the catechism's primary benefit is going to be introducing them to the life of the Catholic faith and the life of the virtues. Maybe I don't need to spend all my time on those kinds of speculative issues. Um, there's no way you can put everything in Catholic tradition into the catechism. And then when you do put something in there, how to frame it, how to word it, how to discuss it, what kind of issues should we raise in discussion? You know, the catechism's it's more complicated than just a question-answer book. Um, there's exposition of doctrine. Well, what kind of language choice do I need to render a doctrine intelligible and approachable to people? Well, that, that's obviously a very context-dependent decision, mm. right? And so the catechism is a work of prudential judgment about how to present the faith. Um, can you stick with the second edition of the catechism? Of course. Of course you can. Now, if, uh, if you are called on to teach a course in catechism, and that's ultimately the value of the catechism, you have to be a catechist in a parish or your RCA instructor, or particularly like if you're a bishop of the Catholic Church, uh-huh. then like you need the most recent edition. Yeah. Because this is the this is what the church has said. We want you to use this as your kind of your go to guide for doing catechesis mm-hmm. now. Um but heck, I have a copy of the Catechism of the Council of Trent. Right? It's five hundred years old. Do I read it? Yeah, I consult it. It's a great catechism written for a different era with different you know, different needs, different cultural situation, but still instructive. Um, you know, Catechism of Pius X, another good one. Um, you know, a lot of people are running around in North America today, particularly on the conservative side, love the Baltimore Catechism. It's totally out of date, 100% out of date. doesn't stop it from being useful. You know, people like it. Sure. Um, and it can be helpful. To a, lot of, a lot of children have been brought up in the Baltimore Catechism. It's not definitive, but it's useful, right? First edition, second edition, there'll maybe be a tenth edition one day. That's fine. That's not, you know, it's not new revelation. Okay. Mel, thanks so much uh, for your email. Here's one now from Anna in Pennsylvania. She says, I am a Protestant, but have recently been exploring the Catholic faith. I have come across a couple of controversial topics that have given me some pause. 
about the state of the Catholic Church and the preservation of faith. I understand there is some controversy around the Novus Ordo, which I believe is the service in English language, and also concerns that there have been changes in the service that would inhibit transubstantiation in the Eucharist. Would you be able to give a history of this issue and your views on the Novus Ordo? And again, that's from Anna in Pennsylvania. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. So the original Mass was celebrated by Jesus Christ on Holy Thursday in the upper room with his disciples. And it was not in English, and it was not in Latin, it was not in Greek. It was most likely in Aramaic. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it we don't have. Right, we have a we have a sketch of what took place in the Synoptic Gospels, and that's it. Um, and but the command, do this in memory of me. And so wherever the gospel went forth throughout the world, people took what Christ did in the upper room, which basically was you know the reading of Scripture, um, prayers of thanksgiving, the consecration of the elements, uh, the offering of the sacrifice, the distribution of the elements to the faithful, um, benediction. Th- those elements are pretty much constant mm-hmm. in, in however the vash, however the mass or the, or the divine liturgy evolved over the centuries. But as the, the apostles and their successors went throughout the known world, embellishments were added to that basic celebration according to the needs and the culture and the language of the people to whom they went. And so as the, as the Eucharist was taken uh, to Syria— it came to look slightly different than when it was taken to Egypt. Uh, and it looked different again in Rome. And it looked different again uh, in Ireland. Uh, it looked different again in southern India. It looked different uh, in, uh, in Chaldea, right? And that stands to reason. That stands to reason. In the, in the Latin West, in the Latin West, so when the Mass was said in Latin, and uh, in the East it tended to be in, in Greek or in Syriac or mm-hmm. other Eastern languages, but it was in, when it came to be said in Latin, there was not one definitive Latin version of the Mass. There were, there were lots of different versions of the Mass. They differed from one another. Um, if, when, they, when they took on some sort of local consistency, we can talk about rites, R-I-T-E-S. And so the Mass came to be celebrated one way in Milan, for example, right, called the Ambrosian Rite. Um, uh, in, in southern France, uh, we can talk about the Gallican Rite. Uh, in England, it took on another character. We can talk about the Serum Rite. Uh, eventually, religious orders would come to celebrate the Mass according to their own particular way. So there's a Dominican Rite, a Carmelite Rite. Um, with, the, uh, with the explosion of the Franciscan Order in the 13th and 14th century, and Franciscans were very effective missionaries, um, uh, the way that Franciscans celebrated the Mass became kind of predominant, very popular. Okay. And there wasn't just one. There were, they, they did it in lots of different ways. Hmm. Uh, and so there never was like one standard liturgy. Um, there were commonalities, of course. At the time of the Council of Trent in the 16th century, um, because of the Protestant Reformation and attacks on the Mass, it seemed prudent to standardize the way the Mass was said in the Latin West. And so what the Church did was they, they found... The, ver- the Franciscan rite that had the widest dissemination and said, we'll make that the base. So they took that and then they you know, altered it a bit and standardized the form of the Mass based on this, this widespread um, Franciscan version. Okay. Uh, but grandfathered in some of the other rites. So the Ambrosian rite remained, um, uh, the, uh, uh, the Dominican rite remained. There were other, 
other Latin rites of the Mass that were allowed to persist. So there never was just one version of the Latin Mass. Uh, and so, but for 500 years, the what's called the Tridentine Rite, what came out of the Council in Trent, was, uh, was the, the dominant and authoritative one that, that would be celebrated in all these, uh, except these other exceptional circumstances. Mm-hmm. Although in the East, the Catholic East, there was never the Tridentine Mass. There was the Divine Liturgy according to St. John Chrysostom, which was the, the dominant way that it was celebrated. But others as well. The, the Assyrian Rite of the Church has their own way of saying the Mass, and so there were always variations. Um, in the in the 1960, well, 1970, after the Second Vatican Council, Council had, had asked for a reform of the Mass, uh, allowing, among other things, greater use of the vernacular. Okay. And, uh, and so the, uh, the Holy See, well, the Office of the Sacred Liturgy in the Holy See undertook a reform of the Mass um, that has been controversial with some and produced what is now the ordinary form of the Mass, which is predominantly in the vernacular. There are more changes than just the language as well. And there was a group of people at the time that um, uh, didn't like that, and took a reactionary position, and in my view, um, made claims about the Tridentine Mass that are not warranted historically, right? Uh, to call it things like the Mass of the Ages strikes me as disingenuous when it was never the Mass, yeah, yeah. right, ever in the history of the Church. It was an important and authoritative stage of the Mass's development, but it was mm-hmm. never the one Mass. Okay. Uh, it certainly wasn't the Mass that Jesus said on Holy Thursday. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think the, the, to, to call... A development into question or to suggest that the Novus Order is somehow invalid is a well it's a it's a very erroneous position and it's a, essentially a reactionary ideological position that puts one at odds with the universal church which is not a good place to be certainly uh, nothing that would inhibit transubstantiation certainly not certainly my not. goodness alright Anna thank you so much uh, for your email wow we got a whole bunch of emails uh, t- taken care of answered squared away whatever you want so now that means the mailbag is empty and we'll, uh, we'll be waiting for your email coming very soon, I hope. Dr. David Andrews, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. Safe travels there and into Texas. Appreciate it. I always say it's, it's my favorite country. Fantastic. <laughs> we'll uh, see you again on uh, Monday for another edition of Call to Communion right here on EWTN. On behalf of our producer, Charles Beery, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Andrews. Have that wonderful weekend that we would like you to have. We'll see you on Monday. Have a great one. God bless. God bless.